Shachtan, an Indo Askelige. Time in Mon Irok the Yen of Chacht Erachor, Agasuligum, a Makan Shaw, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfein. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nach Vetok, Ara, Igornamion, and Kestian Echo. Vien Talam again Omgrev, Orkar Nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. On this week's Big Tech Show, you might not think it could happen to you, but our guest this week explains how a significant number of Irish people may be falling victim to romance frauds online. Victims can feel a misplaced sense of shame. People can blame themselves. They feel embarrassed. And so they don't want to tell family, friends. They don't want to report it to the police. In some cases, of course, the victims are already in relationships. They're married. They have an extra reason to keep that quiet. The Big Tech Show, available on all podcast platforms. Platforms. In a two-part special, the Indo Daily tells the story of Lisa Smith, from government jet to ISIS bride. A lot of people will ask how a woman from Dundalk who was a member of the Defence Forces could go on to become an ISIS bride. And while a lot of folks will be on the ISIS part, and rightly so, I think a key aspect of understanding Lisa Smith's motivations is to look at the bride part of her story. A lot of the women at the mosque who, who knew her say it was always about a man with Lisa. She was just one of those people who seemed to need a man by her side. And for her, the more powerful and devout, the better. Coming soon, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the Indo Daily, you can follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To buy or not to buy, that is the property question. With house prices hitting Celtic Tiger levels, how difficult is it to get a foot on the property ladder? I reckon I saw about over the 50 houses. Um, I was working for home, so I was like going to see houses before starting work, at lunchtime, in the evenings, maybe fitting in three or four house views on a Saturday. You may have your mortgage approval sorted, but then comes the countless viewings and bidding wars. Like I had an appointment in three or four days to view the house and the agent rang me back and said, look, we're, we're cancelling all viewings because the house has now gone a hundred grand over asking. A hundred grand over asking, and there was eight active bidders. Buying a home is the biggest purchase you will ever make, but at what cost? You were just totally deflated and gutted, and you were like, what am I doing? And at, like at that stage, I had gone sale agreed on the apartment, but like hadn't gone through the final close and hadn't moved out. And I was like, oh my God, what am I doing? Today on the Indo Daily, we ask if house prices will continue to rise Or is there a recession looming that could spark yet another property crash? I'm Tabitha Monaghan and joining me are Charlie Weston, personal finance editor of The Irish Independent, and Carl Dieter, CEO of onlineapplication.io. But first, joining me to talk about his own experience is Frank Cleary. Frank, when did you start looking to buy your own home? I had an apartment in Dublin 8 and uh, after COVID I was like, this place is too small. I need something a bit more. And I'd always visage I'd buy a house. So uh, anyway, so around June 21, I was like, that's it. I'm going for it. And um, I started the process then of trying to sell the apartment, getting the agent, selling the apartment, uh, getting my mortgage approval. Um, 
And that process from start to finish took me 11 months. So that day when I said, I'm selling, to getting that organized, to selling the property, to finding a property and moving in took me 11 months. And when did you actually start looking for the house? When did the the new house search start? Um, So I started that search in September 21. So I just got my apartment on the market around that time in August and I kind of had a better idea idea, and I'd done my mortgage approval as well. So I had a better idea what kind of my budget was going to be in terms of house buying. And how were you feeling going into it, Frank? Um... (laughs) Oh, it was a mixture of emotions. I was, I was excited. I was apprehensive. I was like nervous. I've been hearing so many stories about how crazy the market was, um, and how how quickly things were selling and how hard it was to buy. So I, I yeah, I had a lot of emotions going into it. And and like you said, we all have heard those nightmare stories of homes being sold in days that they're being going for well above the asking price. Can you tell me of some of the situations that you found yourself in? Oh, so I saw a lot of houses. I reckon I saw about over the 50 houses. Um, I was working for home, so I was like going to see houses before starting work, at lunchtime, in the evenings, maybe fitting in three or four house views on a Saturday. Um, and in the end, like I saw a lot of houses like disappear. So my first house I was bidding on, it disappeared. It was a really nice house. It just it hit the top of my budget. I couldn't go any further and I was gutted over that house. Uh, it was a lovely house. So I was really gutted over that one. So the house I ended up getting was the ninth house I bid on. So about eight other houses I lost out on in that process. And some of them went like really crazy. Like I saw, I remember seeing this lovely two bed in Crumbin one day. It was absolutely in gorgeous condition, um, straight moving condition. And literally it went through the roof really quickly. And like, I think that one went, I think that one was about 70, 80 grand over budget, over over asking that sold for. And then like there was another house I remember in Kimmage, which was I thought would be like a fallback property because I was bidding on another house at the time. And I thought, well, if I didn't get that one, I could fall back to this one. And like had an appointment in three or four days to view the house. And the agent rang me back and said, look, we're we're cancelling all viewings because the house has now gone a hundred grand over asking. A hundred grand? A hundred grand over asking. And there was eight active bidders and the seller had said no more viewings. What's the point? Like, it was insane. That must be such an emotionally draining situation to be in, to get your hopes up constantly and then hear houses that, like you said, were a fallback, were going for over a hundred thousand of the asking price. Oh, yeah. After that, like, you were just totally deflated and gutted and you were like... What am I doing? And at, like at that stage, I had gone sale agreed on the apartment, but like hadn't gone through the final close and hadn't moved out. And I was like, oh my God, what am I doing? Like, I'm, am I just crazy? Like, am I ever going to find something that, you know, I'm actually going to drop on or actually get a house in the end? Did it ever get to a point where you felt like giving up altogether? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, there, were de- <laughs> there was definitely a couple of low days. And um, but like, yeah, just, but you just kind of have to sit back and just kind of go, crap, like I'll just, I'll get through this. I'll get through this. And I got really good friends and they were like, no, keep going, keep going. Like, you know, something will pop up. It's tough. For anybody listening who's either about to enter that process or is in the middle of it, do you have any advice for them? Oh, look, it's, it is tough. Just keep going. Keep trying. You You are going to lose out on houses that you think are perfect. And 
and you will lose out on them. And that's just a fact. But you just have to keep going and keep slogging at it um, and keep trying and keep viewing. Um, and, and something will pop up eventually. Carl Dieter, CEO of OnlineApplication.com. Recent CSO figures show that house prices hit a seven-year high. Are we seeing history repeat itself here? Well, I guess we're seeing seasonality of history repeat itself. So it's like that Mark Twain expression that it doesn't exactly replicate, but it certainly does rhyme. And what we have witnessed, as everybody knows, is a fairly catastrophic destruction during the financial crisis. And we've turned that into the most catastrophic recovery we could get that has probably had quite negative impacts for the maximum number of people, but equally has had quite positive impacts for a lot of people too. So for all the people who are hurt by rising house prices, that same effect is taking people out of negative equity. It's creating wealth for those who already have homes. So it's it's a real big mishmash of different things occurring. But what we're starting to realize is society as general or society in general cannot really move forward in a cohesive way. And we can't stay competitive and get things right if housing isn't affordable. And that's a key issue that isn't there today. And I suppose when you think about affordability and housing, there's a fear, like you said, that it's, it's rhyming. It's not mirroring exactly what is happening. Have we gotten very close? Are we going to get there? Well, we're actually not too far off some of the peaks you've seen and and in in real estate world we also talk about the the, the compression of, of yield in other words the I don't want to get over into the, the technical side of it but but basically the, the returns that you're getting are becoming smaller because prices are rising too so uh, that effect is something that that you know is very much playing through the market it's mainly driven by central banks they have kept interest rates very low that makes lots of money flow into anything that will get any kind of return Um, Money that typically would have gone into, say, fixed income like bonds or other things is now flowing into real estate. And so you're seeing this huge flush of money going in. At the same time, you're also seeing other things uh, in in the kind of the housing prevention uh, space, which outside of things that sometimes cause delays, like people saying, no, we don't want any more houses in our area. Uh, You know, you've got things like pandemics, you know, Panama Canal being blocked, all these different aspects. And that's creating a different side of this that we don't normally speak about. Everyone knows about kind of demand pull inflation. In other words, loads of demand out there and it pulls up the price. What we're not hearing a lot about is the actual effect of what's known as cost push. It's not a thing that they teach much in economics anymore, but it's where costs rise and it pushes up the price. You know, timber prices have almost doubled in the last year. I'm getting some work done at the moment. My plumber was doing something. I said, you know, why didn't you uh, you know, pipe that in today. He says, I didn't have copper. I was like, what kind of plumber doesn't have copper? He's like, it's 50 euro a length now. I'm not buying that unless I need it. That simply was never the case. So you've also got this rise in prices of materials, this rise in prices of labor, which is all being driven, uh, you know, by, by similar effects. We've got inflation, economies that look like they may be going into some periods of stagnation, and, and at the same time, stubbornly high house prices, which even if we did, for instance, have a recession tomorrow, won't necessarily bring house prices down because the demand is still going to be there because we don't have enough of it. So when something is scarce, the price gets high. It doesn't come down until you swamp it with supply, and we haven't managed to do that. Charlie, Carl mentioned inflation there and cost. It's not just impacting construction, it's impacting everybody. We've heard it, you've reported on it in the Irish Independent, cost of living, the price of energy, for example. Is it going to get to a point where people can only afford so much that they are living the way that they are, everything's increasing for them, and that buying a home is just going to be that 
the tip that they just cannot reach. Yeah, there's got to be a finite number of people who can afford ever-rising prices, and we are seeing prices rise at scary levels. I mean, the last figures from the Central Statistics Office show that prices were up more than 15%. I mean, we're back to Celtic Tiger levels of, of price increases. Prices are within a whisper now of the Celtic Tiger levels. It requires more income now to buy a house than it did back in the crazy days of the Celtic Tiger in 2008. So, yeah, we are seeing huge increases. So, yeah, as I say, there's only so many people who can afford these prices. A lot of that pandemic savings is probably being used up. So, you know, what comes into play here, I think is a big thing that comes into play is price expectations. And I think economists are increasingly recognised that price expectations plays a huge role, the kind of sentiment within the market. And if people think prices are, you know, rising too much and uh, if interest rates are going to start um, rising and the cost of living becomes a big issue, that maybe will sort of calm down some of the panic buying that's going on. I think we'll still see prices increase, but probably not to the crazy levels we're seeing at the moment. Possibly, you know, price rises will probably ease back to about 6 to 7% this year because of interest rates, because prices have got so out of, out of whack and are so high that... Um, we may just see it easing back a bit. And, you know, I think we, it was interesting in the last figures that the monthly increase was about 0.6%. That's still high, but it was 12 months. Uh, it's been 12 months since we've seen it at that rate. So there is some easing. Prices were increasing at 1% a month. So if it's down to half that, that's got to be good. So, you know, hopefully we won't see a crash because uh, banks have been kind of held off from from reckless lending by the, the central bank lending rules and people, you know, now have to have a deposit, a decent deposit before they can borrow. So uh, that would maybe will kind of ease fears of a crash. But, you know, we will see an easing back in house price rises, hopefully. You just say a fear of a crash, but I know plenty of people who have been entering first-time buyers going into the market and there's you get advice left and right from people who are saying, no, go, go, hold off, there's going to be a crash because what goes up must come down. Is that how the property, maybe to you, Carl, is that how the property market works? That if we have this cycle constantly, I mean, as Charlie was saying, he doesn't think there's going to be a crash. What do you think? Yeah, well, I, I, I need to make a big disclosure. Like, I'm a massive believer in property cycles. So, like, I'm completely biased. I actually did a study on this going back to the 1700s to show that we have had cycle after cycle after cycle, different durations. The worst one being the 1800s was a 100-year crash. Um, so, yeah, that that is a thing. Uh, what I would say, like, trees don't grow to the sky. That's a, an expression in economics. It's just because something is going up doesn't mean it just always goes up and it will come down. The frustrating aspect, though, and this is where I, I feel a lot of empathy for, for people who are looking for a home, is if you even take someone who bought it the worst time in the Celtic Tiger, let's just say you know they bought it peak price, peak everything, had they been able to afford that mortgage and were still paying it, then they are guaranteed an equity today, basically, and that you know they probably have a tracker, they probably you know are, have low payments, uh, they're actually sitting okay. The problem is always with these kind of things because it's a you know 20, 30 year contract. Is can you stay the course during that entire time? Because if you have to get off the carousel in year five or year nine and crystallize, that's when you can get really pounded. So will prices drop? I think they have to in order to regain our health as a as as, as a, a nation's economy. We can't have these stubbornly high house prices 
it being the norm or it, it simply takes too many people out and you push a lot of people from middle-class expectations far down the chain who then need support. That support has to come from people further up the chain. It narrows the tax base, reduces our competitiveness because they want rises to be able to afford the higher taxes. You get into this vicious cycle rather than a virtuous cycle, which would be if we had, say, for instance, better property taxation, better ability to provide housing, we could make sure that we actually had a, a slight oversupply. You see, the oversupply is what makes it affordable. The crash was a symptom of mass oversupply. We went into hypersupply, everyone realized it, they stopped buying, and prices came down. But it wasn't like like price suddenly just, like price isn't a thing. Price is a reflection of demand and supply. It's, it's, a, it's an, an extraction of it. And so when you saw the crash, that's what you saw is the proof that mass supply fixes price. And we need to do something that fixes price. But and are we likely to see that mass supply? Is that I, I, I think the, the, the latest figures, there's figures out yesterday from the Department of Housing showing the commencements are, are, are back to where they were back in the last 10, 12 years. Like there was 32,400 commencements in the year to date in April. That's kind of getting close to what we need in terms of the demographics, the demand that's there. And that will help, you know, um, as long as builders don't slow down. As Carl says, a big, big factor here is the huge increase in the cost of materials, wood and steel in particular. And, you know, if that's kind of becomes a problem, uh, you know, th th that would that will interfere with, with the delivery of housing. But it's very positive that new housing com commencements now, a lot of those are one-off housing and, and you know, a lot of them end up being bought by cuckoo funds or by uh, the state in terms of approved housing bodies. So the number of houses actually available to buy tends to be very small. One study done by Lorcan Sir, he's a lecturer in DIT, um, uh, he, 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 he said, look, maybe just 6,000 of those will become available to buy. So, you know, it is difficult, but um, the fact that commencement notices are way up, you know, they are notices that builders give to local authorities saying, we're about to start building here, uh, that, that they're up to about 32,000, 33,000. That's, that's where we need to be, and that's positive. So for both of you, what would you suggest people do now? Is it a case of wait for these houses to come on stream? Let's let, let's not lose sight of the fact that when you have a housing shortage, I don't know that it really matters who supplies the housing. Now, like we, we have this thing like the funds are bad. Some people think the funds are good, you know, whatever. The fact is, if you if you have a hundred of something because of this group, are you somehow better off if you didn't have a hundred of that thing, which in this case is houses? I would argue, no, you're not. Funds are actually helping to provide housing to a market that desperately needs it. And in that sense, it absolutely needs to be commended. In terms of what you do, that's a very different question. So people don't always buy houses because it's like, yeah, I did this financial equation, it makes sense. Usually there's some kind of impulse. You know, they want to move out. They're in a relationship. They have children. They move to a new place where they don't have you know, uh, family, there's a load of different reasons. Now, when you're making that decision, the financial sense of it isn't always the primary driver. That's really important to understand. So there's people out there who are buying houses right now, and chances are, if they didn't have to, they probably wouldn't be. Um, but they've committed to that, that's what they're doing. Get back to that idea of, you can't time the cycle. We don't know when prices are gonna rationalize. Uh, so if you held off for two years, and you paid, say, 40000 in rent, and then prices dropped twenty grand. are you better off? 
these are the things that make it confounding to say what you should do. What you should do is what's actually good for you. And the way you find out what's good for you is to sit down, either figure it out for yourself, which a lot of people do, or get some professional advice, which is, I think is the better choice. But you've got to do what's right for you because it's not you versus the market. It's you versus you. Many things in life, it's not me versus Charlie or you or anyone. It's us versus ourselves. And that's the thing that's missing from this whole conversation. And and when we talk about it in the big scheme, we're very good at pointing out like the, the symptomatic part of it. We're very good at pointing out the high temperature, but we're blaming the thermometer. You've got to get to the disease. Charlie, do you agree with that? Well, I, I wouldn't agree that funds are, are are good. I think it's a niche product. I think these cuckoo funds build to, to rent as a niche product, but it's become too mainstream now where they're building kind of a thousand units and you know, 20, 25 kilometers outside of city centers, you know, which is, you know, something I know about in my village. And I just don't think that's, that's if they're just for rent and they're at very high rents, that that really should should be remain a niche product and shouldn't become so dominant. But that's what we're seeing. A lot of the new builds are expensive build to rent, small units being rented out at very high prices in areas that are not necessarily good for renters. I think we need to build more homes. Um, the other thing is, yeah, it's impossible to time the cycle. If people need to buy, they need to buy, you know, rents are, remember, as well as having uh, an issue around affordability and the ev- and the number of properties being built that people can buy, we have a massive problem with, with, with rents. Rents are just crazy. Half of those who rent at the moment are having to get state subsidies. Probably more people, if they could qualify, will get state subsidies. You know, you have rents going up at 12% was the, the latest figures we saw. You know, you're, you're throwing an awful lot of money at a rental issue. Uh, I think people, if they can buy and if they can find something they want to buy that suits them, uh, you know, go for it, you know, because uh, it's just very difficult to time the market. You're paying a lot of money for rent. And, uh, you know, if you're in there and you're able to afford, you keep, you stay in a job and you're able to afford to keep paying the mortgage, you're going to be okay. Can I ask you about a single person, though? Because those CSO figures as well, I believe it was CSO, the average household income has to be 77,000 or is about 77,000. Mm. For a single person, that's very <clears throat> difficult. For a couple, maybe. It's, yeah. it's it's more attainable, but for a single person, is it impossible now? Yeah, to buy it, a that's in that's very very high. I mean, that's extraordinarily high, and it's way up on what it was back in the Celtic Tiger times when, you know, the the average was about sixty grand. You know, it's, it's these are figures that come out this week, and that's six thousand more than was needed to, to to qualify for a mortgage. What you're saying is here, yeah, the figures have shown it takes about seventy seven thousand euros to qualify for a mortgage. A single person would need to be earning, you know, in an incredibly good job to afford that. So that's really difficult. Uh, uh, you know, um, so this, this is why so few single people can afford to buy anything, and so little in terms of what single people buy. They used to buy an apartment as a starter home. The apartments now are just they're not there to, to, for, for for sale. Yeah. Single people, even during the crash, were about one in five mortgages. So I don't know how, what they are in buyers because there was always like cash buyers out there as well. Maybe someone inherits money, buys it on their own, inherits a house, then therefore they become a homeowner. Um, so they they were always a minority. Uh, so in that sense, it, like there is always going to be this group who want to buy on their own, live on their own, and they're going to have to have a high income. The amazing thing is there's actually a lot of people on very good incomes out there. The average full-time wage in this country um, is 45000 a year. So because the majority of people buy as couples, you're looking at a household income because that measures everyone putting in there to about 90000 if they are both on average full-time wage, working full-time. What you see in that instance then is obviously affordability still very much is there when you look at it from that figure of 77,000. What isn't there is selection. What isn't there is location. What isn't there necessarily is the ability to to have 
the choice that you want when you say like, yes, I can afford something, but quite often the people who are earning those money can't afford to live in the area that they've actually been hoping to live in all that time. On the single people it is, it's, it's, it's one of those tragic byproducts and we tend not to have a lot of empathy for, for the single person. Um, they don't come up in the, you know, the conversation. It's always the parents, the kids, you know, but, but they're people too, as are renters, you know, as are everybody who needs housing. And that's why I keep getting back to this idea that if we're increasing the, the access to housing, the supply, the, the variety, you know, those are all ultimately going to be good things. We're just in this stubbornly frustrating stage where we didn't do it early enough. We're trying to catch up and, you know, catching up. In the time we're trying to catch up, we've also timed it as bad as you could. Charlie, can I ask you about um, interest rates? Mm. We're seeing that the ECB are going to be increasing their interest rates in July and September. It's a, a, a decade since they've increased them. What mm. is that going to do? It's more than a decade, yeah. I mean, we, 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 we've been uh, in a very lucky position where, where interest rates have just been at zero for six years, and it's 11 years since they were last increased. But the very strong indications are that they will start increasing rates later in the summer. They'll, they'll move what they call the European Central Bank deposit rate, and then what's the refinancing rate will probably change as well. And the refinancing rate is the important one because that determines what variable rates are, are charged at and tracker rates. And then it means that new fixed rates coming out would be more expensive. At the moment, people are in a good position because we have very, very low rates in this country. There's some great fixed rates to be had at the moment. But, you know, for people, new buyers out there, um, it, the, the rates are good at the moment, but they are probably going to go up later this year and through <coughs> next year, not by huge amounts, but, but because uh, we haven't seen rate, rate increases for a very long time, it is going to be uh, something that people are going to have to get used to and get their head around. And I suppose we, we always compare what's currently happening to the Celtic Tiger and of course then there was the crash, there was the recession. There's also talk there might be a recession, that it's inevitable when interest rates go up and when inflation is high. Is that coming down the line? What do you both think? Yeah, so like recession by definition is two or more quarters of negative or stagnant uh, gross domestic product or, or total economic output of a country. Um, you know, and, and that's something that you can only see in the rear view mirror. So when you actually start into a recession, you're not aware of it. You can sometimes have these little hints that it's coming. Uh, you see it, for instance, in money market prices. You see it in yield curves. You see it. There's a load of different indicators. You see it in, in work hours. And I think there probably is a strong likelihood we're going to get a recession. Now, how deep, how bad, anybody's guess. Charlie, what do you think? I think we're inevitably going to face some kind of a downturn. You know, I mean, food shortages and um, you know, energy costs, are, that's feeding through in all aspects of the economy. It's how bad it is, uh, you know, because we're in a lucky position in this economy. We have employment growth. We have income growth at the moment. Tax revenues are very buoyant. Um, you know, so... That, that, that's good, it's positive for this economy, but as Carl says, we can't avoid what's happening in the rest of the world and we're, we're price takers on so many things, particularly energy and, you know, a lot of our f uh, f food inputs are imported. So, you know, there's, a, there's an inevitability that it's going to be a tough winter and when people start switching on energy, you know, in, in the houses in the winter, they'll really feel that, that the higher energy prices. So all of that feeds into price. I think that feeds into sentiment. You know, and, and when people see that, it, it leaves some of the panic that's there at the moment where people feel, I have to get on the property ladder, I have to get on the property ladder. That was Charlie Weston and Carl Dieter. My thanks also to Frank Cleary. Today's episode of the Indo-Daily was presented by myself, Tabitha Monaghan, produced and researched by Garrett Mulhall, recording by Gavin Hennessy, with sound design by John Smith. If you enjoy the Indo-Daily, 
Don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review.